0: We're going to get to continue our series on parables of the Old Testament. It's been a long time since we've we've been able to study these parables. Last week we had our Victory Sunday. The week before that was Questions and Answers. So we're back at it tonight in Isaiah chapter 5. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles over to Isaiah 5. And uh, we will be looking at that parable in I usually begin by just reading the parable. That's what I'll do tonight, starting with verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down I will make it a waste it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up I will also command the clouds that they rain no more rain on it for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting and he looked for justice but behold bloodshed for righteousness but behold An outcry. Many of you have heard the the myth or the story of the Trojan horse. Uh, Whether it's true or not, we we can't be certain. But it is said that after a ten-year war, the Greeks, under the behest of Odysseus, constructed a wooden horse and secretly hid a number of their soldiers in it and presented it to the Trojans as a gift. And the Trojans brought it into their fortified city thinking it was a victory trophy. Then the Greeks pretended to sail off and under the cloak of night they returned and the men inside the horse came out, opened the gates and let the rest of the Greek armies in and they stormed the city. Troy fell and the war ended. That has lent itself to an expression of a Trojan horse. And tonight what we're looking at is a Trojan horse. This parable was used to kind of catch the the leaders of Judah off guard and they passed their own sentence on themselves. And we've seen this tactic many times already with the parables. Uh, We saw it with regard to the best known Old Testament parable in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where Nathan confronts King... David, with the story of the ewe lamb. It's also interesting to note that Jesus told a parable of a vineyard in Matthew 21, and he did the very same thing. He kind of allowed it to sneak up on his listeners, and they didn't realize until they had passed judgment on themselves that the parable was about them. This is the same thing that's happening in Isaiah chapter five. It's one of these Trojan horse parables. And uh, you can see how cleverly Isaiah presents it to the people. It says that it's a song, so he may have actually literally sung it to the people. The key concept is found in verse 4. Look at that verse. It's a question. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? That's the question before us tonight. What more can God do for you than he has already done? What more can he do for this world than he has already done? It's a very profound question that invites our attention this evening. And we're going to look at this parable in three ways. First of all, we're going to examine what God did. In the second place, we're going to examine what Judah did. And finally, we're going to look at the judgment in what God did not do. we start with what God did as we look at this. And there are several things in the parable that we see the beloved, who is representing God, doing for his vineyard, which represents Judah. First of all, you can see uh, in verse 1 that he provided fertile soil capable of fostering life and growth. He planted this vineyard, verse 1 says, on a very fertile hill. And we overlook the importance of soil. We say, well, that's just dirt. And we don't see how important it is. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one, more time than the other details of the parable. And I want you to get in your mind how important soil truly is. And what the beloved is doing here in choosing fertile soil for his vineyard. Here's a a quote by one of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a a writer uh, from Kentucky. He's also a farmer and he writes a lot about agriculture. And here's one thing he says about the soil. He says, the soil is the great connector of lives, the source and destination of all. It is the healer and restorer and resurrector by which disease passes into health, age into youth, death into life. Without proper care for it, we can have no community because without proper care for it, we can have no life. Here's another quote from Barry: The most exemplary nature is that of the topsoil. It is very Christ-like in its passivity and beneficence, And in the penetrating energy that issues out of its peaceableness, it increases by experience, by the passage of seasons over it, growth rising out of it and returning to it, not by ambition or aggressiveness. It is enriched by all things that die and enter into it. It keeps the past, not as history or as memory, but as richness, new possibility. Its fertility is always building up out of death into promise. Death is the bridge or the tunnel by which its past enters its future. Uh, Wendell Berry has thought a lot more about dirt than most of us. (laughs) He's very philosophical about the soil and that's because our lives depend on it. And another interesting thing is he, he makes an analogy between the soil and Christ because just as we find life through death in Christ, uh, the soil brings life out of death. It's kind of a resurrector if you think about what goes on in the decomposition that creates soil and how important that is to life. It's very important to have a fertile place in which to plant a vineyard. And in this parable, the, uh, the beloved who stands in for God He finds such a place. In the Genesis account, we read a lot about how connected we are to the soil. You may or may not be aware of the fact that the word for soil in Hebrew is Adama. And that's the same word from which we get the name of the first man, Adam. And so if you look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, here's how it reads. It says... The Lord God formed Adam from the adama, the, the soil, the dust of the earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. Adam is immediately put to work taking care of the soil. You go on down to verse 15, and you see that the Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it, to work the soil. And then you may remember that when Adam sinned, the ground, still adama. although our English translations, this is kind of frustrating, they they switch words, but ground, dust of the earth, soil, it's all referring to the adama. the ground is cursed. Look at the curse, Genesis 3 beginning verse 17. Because you, because Adam, the man out of the soil, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the adama, the ground, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the adama. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, your adama. And to dust you shall return. And so we pick up on some things from these quotes and from these biblical passages about the soil. The soil is very important to life. We cannot neglect it because we are permanently connected to it. And God made us by combining soil with his divine breath. And so you can think of it this way. A human being's identity equals soil plus divine breath. A human being's vocation equals soil plus gardening work. The biblical story is telling us that the fate of soil is tied up in the fate of humanity. And and when the soil is good, human life is good. When it's bad, life is bad. We can't get our nourishment, we can't get our life without fertile soil so we go back to this analogy that that isaiah is saying and we might pass over the fertile hill but what it's saying is god very carefully chose a place where life could be generated not only generated but sustained he was very careful about that going back to the parable what did he do next well Represented by the beloved who planted the vineyard, we see number two, he cultivated the land, removing all obstacles to growth. Verse two, he dug and cleared it of stones. And this is what God did when he brought the Israelites into the promised land. It was full of inhabitants, and the first generation out of Egypt were afraid of these inhabitants. Many of them were giants, they said. They did not believe they were able to take it. And on their own, they would not have been able to take the promised land. But first Jericho and then many other cities after it fell, one right after the other, as God removed their enemies from that land and gave them houses they didn't build, wells they didn't dig, vineyards and fig trees they didn't plant. He removed all the obstacles and cultivated the land and put them in this land land that flowed with milk and honey. And he's done the same for us. In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about how human hearts are like soil. And the condition of the soil, whether or not it has been properly cultivated, determines whether or not the gospel will germinate within it. Hard hearts, thorny, distracted hearts, rocky, shallow hearts will not germinate seed that brings forth a yield, but a good heart, good soil which is an honest and good heart it will germinate uh, seed and that seed will yield 30 fold, 60 fold 100 fold and so it's very important to have a heart cultivated by God by love for God and devotion to his word. Number three in the parable you see he selected good seed Verse 2 continues, and planted it with choice vines. Quality matters whether you're talking about the soil or the seed. And there are many seeds. If you want to think of the seed as an idea that's planted, there are many seeds out there that want to take root in your heart. And some of them are very bad. And, of course, the gospel is the seed God wants in our hearts. The devil sows tares in order to deceive and destroy in John chapter ten, verse ten, he he wants to kill and destroy. But Christ comes bearing imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. First Peter chapter one, verse twenty-three. Number four, in this parable, he also protected his vines when they were vulnerable. If you look and continue reading, verse two, he built a watchtower in the midst of it. Now I don't think from my reading this was a common practice in vineyards to build a watchtower. They might have something in there to watch over the vineyard, but not something so expensive and massive as a watchtower. Uh, But this was the care that the beloved had for his vineyard. In Jerusalem, God gave protectors, spiritual protectors, prophets, priests, and kings to guard the spiritual lives of the people, but they didn't listen to them. They wouldn't allow them to protect them. They instead went to the people who wanted destruction for them. And in our day, God is all-powerful, and His children are promised protection. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 29, No one will snatch them out of my hand. As long as we continue to devote ourselves to Christ, nobody can separate us from His love, Romans 8, 38 and 39. We continue in this parable and we see that he also had high expectations for the future. Go on and look at the last of verse 2. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. He had every reason to believe that Israel would be successful. He had given Israel everything that it needed as a nation to be successful. No harm could come to her, but she rebelled against the Lord and denied the bright future that he planned for. And God wants to make our lives better, but few choose to enter the narrow gate that leads to life. So Isaiah lines all of this up, and then he asks in verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Israel had no excuse. God had given Israel everything that they needed. And he's given us through the gospel everything that we need. Romans 8 verse 1 says it all. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear as long as we are in Christ. And so the first thing we look at as we study this parable is what God did. And we see that the rhetorical question leads us in the right direction. What more could he do that he had not already done? There was nothing more that he could do. He had done everything that was needed. So let's turn in the second place now to what Judah did in response. And it's a sad story. The twist in verse 2 is that the vineyard yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes. The word for wild grapes comes from a root meaning literally to stink. And you have other translations, uh, such as the New American Standard Bible, worthless ones, worthless grapes. Or the NIV, which has bad fruit. Basically, it refers to gnarled, sour, worthless fruit. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? There really doesn't seem to be any reason for it. And in asking this question, I picture Isaiah standing before this group and inviting them to give an answer. Now, we don't have the answer recorded here, but I believe there were probably a lot of vine dressers and farmers in the audience who said, you know, there's nothing more that you could do. The vineyard needs to be destroyed. It needs to be left alone it, ne- it needs to be left to its own because it's not worth all the work and all the investment and all the expense the conclusion then must have really shocked his hearers because after making this point so well he kind of does a Nathan remember Nathan said to David you are the man well that's Verse 7 is the You Are the Man passage. Look at it again. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, my translation, I have footnotes that say that the words justice and bloodshed in Hebrew, Sound very similar. And the words uh, righteousness and outcry in Hebrew sound very similar. So he's doing wordplay. Keep in mind most of Isaiah is poetry. So he's making a play on words here, and it's as if he's saying, Your bloodshed looks like justice, your outcry looks like righteousness, your wild grapes. LOOK LIKE GOOD GRAPES, BUT THEY'RE NOT. ON THE OUTSIDE YOU MAY APPEAR TO BE RELIGIOUS, DEVOTED PEOPLE, BUT ON THE INSIDE YOU'RE FULL OF ROTTENNESS. VERY SIMILAR TO SOMETHING CHRIST SAID TO THE PHARISEES AFTER HIS VINEYARD PARABLE IN MATTHEW CHAPTER 23. ON THE OUTSIDE YOU LOOK LIKE uh, DISHES THAT ARE WASHED, ON THE INSIDE IT'S FULL OF CORRUPTION. On the outside, you look like whitewashed tombs. On the inside, dead men's bones and rottenness. Externally, they looked good, but they weren't good. What follows in Isaiah 5 are six woes to explain what Judah had done to reject the Lord's gracious provisions. And again, you see another parallel in Jesus' ministry. He tells this vineyard parable to the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 21 and then in Matthew 23 that parable is followed by seven woes and I don't think that's coincidental uh, Isaiah's vineyard parable followed by six woes Jesus vineyard parable followed by seven woes you have an audience in the Pharisees that are very similar to Isaiah's audience here in Isaiah chapter five now what is a woe a woe is Um, a statement that says, may God bring judgment upon the people who act this way. Woe. And there are six of them, and uh, we'll go through them quickly as we look at this text. First of all, look at verses 8 through 10. You have here a woe to the greedy. Uh, Verses 8 through 10. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant, for ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. The law of Moses required that the land remain in the hands of, of the families to whom it was originally allotted. You can look back on uh, the, the Law of Moses, of course, and then the book of Joshua, where the land was allotted family by family. Uh, you could, if you got into financial trouble, sell your land to get out of debt. But every 50th year, the year called the year of Jubilee, the land was supposed to go back to the original possessors, the family, that is, that, that originally possessed it. It seems like in Isaiah's day, though, They were neglecting these welfare laws that were meant to keep people from being impoverished, and the rich were taking advantage of the poor and were not following the law of God. They ignored it, and the more they hoarded, God says, the less you will have in terms of crops. Number two, we find in verses 11 and 12, a woe to the indulgent. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Out of all the sins, this probably hits home the hardest. We live in a hedonistic society where pleasure is God. People chase after every temptation, every pleasure and put that before God's will. We live in a society like that. Isaiah says in verse 12, my people go into exile for a lack of knowledge. It's very similar to Hosea 4, 6, which is more familiar to us. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Knowledge in these two prophecies is not just intellectual knowledge. It has to do with that, but also a covenant relationship with God. Knowing God in an intimate way because you're devoted to him, you worship him, you study his word, you, you think about him all the time. And this was no longer in the hearts of Isaiah's people or Hosea's people. And so they were going into exile after Isaiah's day simply because they no longer knew who the Lord was. And instead, their gods were wine and feasting and pleasure and immorality. God is holy, verse 16 says, and those who put pleasure before Him are able to be in His presence. And without Him, they are destroyed. So look at the third woe. This is verses 18 and 19. Woe to the defiant. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. There are probably three different ways you can interpret verse 18. Look at it again. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So you can think of, people being attached by ropes to a cart or to their sin. So what does that mean? How do we interpret it? The first way you could interpret it is in terms of the enticement of sin. James writes about that in James 1, 14 and 15, where he says, each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin. But you'll notice here that the image is backwards because it's not the sin pulling the people, but it's the people pulling the sin. So that's not the right interpretation. A second way that you can interpret it is to think of it as the sinner inviting sin into his life. And that certainly fits the context much better, especially if you tie it into the verses that we read a moment ago, starting in verse 11 and following. Uh, they, they want sin in their lives. They are chasing it, pursuing it. They're pulling it after them. A third interpretation that also could apply and maybe both of these are, are involved in what Isaiah says, is slavery, as an ox is tied to a cart and forced to draw it. So these people are so tied or chained, you might say, to their sin, that they've become enslaved by it. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8:34 that sin enslaves. And Peter points out that whatever controls you, is your master you're enslaved to it second Peter chapter 2 verse 19 so verse 18 I think has the idea of both those things they are tied to their sins they're pulling the sins along behind them not realizing that they've become slaves to their own sins their own indulgences verse 19 is interesting because they seem to be inviting God to act in their overconfidence. Maybe they're just saying this to try to convince themselves by their own words, by their own overconfidence. Either way, it is something that will bring destruction on them. Woe to the defiant. Number four, four of six. This is woe to the confused. Another very relevant passage, verse 20. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good who put light for darkness and darkness for light, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That sounds very similar to the state we're in in America today. And we talked about this verse this morning. We live in an upside-down world. Virtues are criticized as hateful things. Sinful, ugly things are lifted up as, as virtuous things. And our young people are really suffering from this. Trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong in this world is a very difficult thing to do. And that's why our young people are on the brink of the worst mental health crisis that we've seen in our lifetimes. They're struggling to understand. They're so confused. And the authorities are telling them different things, giving them mixed signals. This is the society in which Isaiah lived. And the people were rebelling against him to their own destruction. And so we come to number five, verse 21. Woe to the conceited. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Pride is destructive. Pride is the root really of all sin. Think about it. What sin doesn't come from being wise in your own eyes? From saying, I know better about how to run my life then God knows. It's all, it all stems from pride. And so we come to the last woe. The sixth one, woe to the unrestrained. Verses 22 and 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Very similar to what we were talking about a moment ago with the indulgent people. These are the unrestrained people. They were supposed to be God's chosen nation, an example to the rest of the world, but they were living just like everybody else in the world, as if they had not had the light amongst them. So we see what God did. He made this vineyard and he did everything that was needed for its well-being, its growth, for its production. And what did he get? Greed, indulgence, defiance, confusion, conceit, pride, and a lack of restraint. He expected good grapes, and what he got was worthless. What God did, what they did, what happens next? You might think that he would go through the vineyard, burn it down, pull it up by the roots, tear down the watchtower, salt the earth in vengeance, but that's not what happens. In fact, we should talk about it in terms of what God didn't do. Look back at verses 5 and 6. Here's what it says. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds... That they rain no rain upon it. In one sense, he's very active. He's tearing down hedges and walls. He's commanding the rain not to rain. But in another sense, what he's really doing is just pulling back and letting nature take its course. If you have a garden or you have crops, if you've ever done any farming, you know that if you leave the land alone, the briars and the thorns and the weeds are going to take over the crop. The good plants never win over the bad plants without our help. And so what you see God doing, he's just withdrawing and he's saying, have it your way. He did all of this work. And in the parable, at the beginning of the parable, you see all these active verbs. He planted, he dug, he cultivated, he built. And now in the judgment, it's all passive. I will remove these things, and they shall be devoured. Not by him, but by the natural course of things. I'll, I'll break down the hedge. I'll break down the wall. It shall be trampled down, because that's what happens when vineyards aren't protected. I'll no longer provide rain, and so it will become dry, parched ground he's just stepping back out of the way and he's saying to his people you want this have it your way because folks the worst kind of judgment that can happen to us is for us to have our own way our own sinful will is the worst kind of judgment that God could give us and let me submit to you that what we're seeing here is a picture Of hell. Now, skeptics criticize the Bible and Christians for believing in hell. They said, You say you follow a good God. How could a good God ever send anybody to hell? And I submit to you that somebody who would ask that question doesn't understand what hell is. Is hell the will of God? No. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4 says that God's desire is for all people to be saved. That's what He wants. And if God had it His way, all people would be saved. But He lets us make our own choices. What's hell? Hell is simply us choosing to walk away from God and live without His protection without his nourishment, without his light, without his guidance, without his life. And so many people choose hell over God. No, they don't choose flames and fire and outer darkness and gloomy chains and the worm that does not die. Those are all metaphors for hell. And I think... You know, if we want to strike fear in the hearts of people, there is a use for that. I think that we need to bring those images up and think about what they mean. But I also think sometimes we need to talk about what the essence of hell is. And the essence of hell is living without God. That's what eternal punishment is. No more chance for forgiveness. No more chance for mercy no more chance to be back in God's good graces Paul puts it plainly in second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might that friends in literal terms is hell and that is a fire and that is darkness and it's awful and we say we don't want it but if we run away from God we're running straight to hell because what hell is is a place that God has stepped away from and he's left it to its own destruction so it's not what he did to the vineyard in wrath You see, it's really what He didn't do. He stopped nourishing it. He stopped saving it. He stopped protecting it. God's mission on earth is not to bring hell. It's to bring heaven. We've already brought hell. God didn't have to do anything for us to be in hell. He sent His Son, and this is good news, the gospel. He sent His Son to save us from hell. We talk a lot about John 3, 16, and it's a great passage of Scripture. But We should keep reading in verses 17 and 18. Listen to what it says. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world... Jesus didn't come on a mission of condemnation. Why did he come? But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does that mean? The one who doesn't believe is condemned already? What it means is if Jesus had never come, the whole world would remain in its self-condemnation because it withdrew in sin away from God into hell. And it would be in that position for all of eternity. Reject the Savior, you cannot be saved. You see, what a lot of people don't understand when they think about going to heaven without Jesus or having a great life after death without Jesus, they don't understand Jesus is the only Savior. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only Jesus. Without Jesus, you can't be saved. Jesus is the life preserver. And our sins are drowning all of us. If we don't reach out to the Savior, we cannot be saved. WHAT GOD DID WAS ALL THAT HE COULD HAVE DONE. AND WHAT WE'VE DONE, AS ISRAEL, IS WE'VE SINNED AND rebelled AGAINST HIM. AND SO WE'VE WITHDRAWN FROM HIM. HE HASN'T WITHDRAWN FROM US. IN THE PARABLE OF THE PRODIGAL SON, IT WASN'T THE FATHER WHO LEFT THE HOME. IT WAS THE SON WHO LEFT HOME. AND THE FATHER WATCHED AND HE WAITED and he prayed for his son to come home for his son to come away from hell back to the light back to the life and the same is true for all of us all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of god have you come back to god where the vineyard is where there's protection Where their watchtower is where the rain falls and the soil is rich and fertile if you need to come back to that tonight god is still working his vineyard and the gate is still open and he still wants you to be saved you may not have another opportunity so why not come tonight we're going to sing an invitation song if we can encourage you in any way come now as we stand together and as we (laughs) sing